Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 72. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 8 through 12 of 2 Samuel and follow with a consideration of the tricky issue of consent. Considering the rip-roaring intrigue of the previous chapters, this episode's portion is rather tame, at least at the outset. David wages war against his neighbors, defeating and subjugating the Philistines, Edomites, Moabites, and the Arameans of Damascus, who came to the aid of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, whom he also subjugated. Chapter 8 concludes with a list of David's closest aides, including the ruffian Yoav ben Suria, who, despite his ruffian ways at the conclusion of the previous episode, continues to serve as general. Chapter 9 demonstrates... That despite his political machinations, David is a nice guy. Quote, Is there anyone who is still left from the house of Shaul that I may keep faith with for the sake of Yonatan? The answer is surprisingly yes. Mephibosheth, the disabled son of Yonatan, is located and brought to the palace and, quote, dwelled in Jerusalem, for at the king's table he would always eat. When David's emissaries to Hanun, king of the Ammonites, are humiliated by the newly crowned king, this means war! So chapter 10 finds David obliging and dispatching his armies under Yoav's command to smite them and their Aramean allies. This route is so thorough that all the other regional kings, quote, made peace with Israel and became its vassals, and the Arameans were afraid to rescue the Ammonites again. Chapters 11 and 12 recount the infamous story of David and Bathsheba. You know, it's a classic love story, almost a cliche, really. Boy sees girl, invites girl over, sleeps with girl, and impregnates the girl, and then has the girl's husband killed to cover up the affair. Then the boy's prophet cleverly rebukes the boy, and God punishes the boy with endless familial strife and violence. But not before the girl gets impregnated again, gives birth to Solomon, the boy's heir apparent, while the boy goes off to command the troops and finally crush the Ammonites. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth... The consideration. Superheroes dominate the popular consciousness these days, and it seems that every 10 minutes or so there's a new movie or TV series which expands the Marvel or DC universe ad absurdum. The Netflix series Jessica Jones delivers by extending the Marvel Cinematic Universe into murkier and grittier territory, and also arguably introducing us to one of the most sinister and terrifying villains in the superhero genre. Kilgrave. Kilgrave is not your run-of-the-mill supervillain. He can't travel through time. He can't shapeshift. All he can do is bend your will to his. Come back here! Jessica! No, Jessica! And he doesn't use his evil powers to try to manipulate markets or take over the world. He just wants the love of a good woman. Using mind control, Kilgrave kept the supernaturally gifted Jessica Jones in a state of total submission dressed up like a pretty trophy, exploited and continually smiling at his command until she managed to break free from his control. How she did this? Well, who knows? And the nefarious thing about Kilgrave's raping of Jessica is that, though clearly a violation, it included a sense of collusion because Jessica, as strong as she was, was not physically overpowered. In a sense, Kilgrave's mind control is a roofie. It suppresses your ability to make judgments, to function, to choose. 
but it's also an addiction because you act but can't help yourself. It's also a mental illness and also a form of domestic violence. So later, when Kilgrave sadistically manipulates Jessica into returning to him, he wants her to come back willingly. I promise that I won't touch you until I get your genuine consent, he tells her. He's promising not to hurt the woman he's already brutalized. He does this to seduce her. Kilgrave believes he deserves Jessica because he desires her, which means that Jessica's own desires and her consent are just obstacles. Which, when stated quite like that, is completely messed up, but not any more messed up than, say, Edward Cullen's pursuit of Bella Swan in the Twilight series, or Christian Grey's relationship with Anastasia Steele in Fifty Shades of Grey. It's all about male entitlement. Female consent is largely irrelevant. But what do we mean when we talk about having consent, giving consent, or being coerced into giving consent as Kilgrave does? Here's a quick sketch of what is meant by consent in Canada. First, consent itself. In order to give consent or permission for something to happen, one must have knowledge and understand what one is consenting to. And one must give that consent freely, something, incidentally, which Kilgrave's victims could not do. And, as radical feminists Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon, among others, have argued, heterosexual women can never do either. Because, as they argue, women can truly... Never be free to refuse men sexually, as men possess more power physically, economically, and politically. We'll return to this point later. One other issue with consent is how it is given. Is it a mental or verbal act? Do I have to think to myself, okay, go ahead, or do I have to say it out loud? And how is the other person to know if I'm thinking, okay, go ahead? So what, in effect, happens more often than not in the case of mental consent is acquiescence. That is, the person doesn't say no, but doesn't say yes either. This is not explicit consent. So when it comes to the law in Canada, specifically the 1992 Bill C-49, which amended the sexual assault section of the criminal code, consent shakes down as follows. You can only consent for yourself. You actually have to be able to give consent. That means you have to be awake, conscious, and sober enough to make a clear decision. People in positions of trust, power, or authority cannot abuse their position to get sexual activity. If you imply no through your words or behaviors, that's just as good as saying no. You have the right to change your mind and stop any time for any reason during sexual activity. As for the age of consent, it's 16. If you're under 12, you're not the age where you can even give consent, so forget it. But if you're between the ages of 12 and 16, however, Canadian law is somewhat flexible in cases where people are, quote, close in age and peers. Got that? There will be a test later. And consent, as clear as it may seem in the law, is so poorly understood in the world that some school districts have a sex education class that actually includes consent education. I've included a New York Times piece from 2015 at thenextjew.com and on the Facebook show page about a program in San Francisco that teaches lessons in affirmative consent. California is the first state in the U.S. to require it. All of which leads to the big question of this episode. Did Batsheva consent to David's advances? Could she have said no? Now, David is not a biblical killgrave. He does not have the power to bend people's wills. But he had absolute power. He was the king of Israel. David, as chapter 11 tells us, was walking on his roof, enjoying the fresh air. 
David's palace, which has been tentatively identified as the large stone structure unearthed by Dr. Eilat Mazar in 2005, was built on the highest point inside the historic city. So he would have had a commanding view of the houses below. So he's having a lovely stroll when he notices a woman bathing. Though the text tells us she is very beautiful, it also identifies her oddly. She is Batsheva, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. Eliam is one of David's elite 30. So too is Uriah, a Hittite with a nice Jewish name. Perhaps he's a convert. This information does not deter David in the least. Quote, And David sent messengers and fetched her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, she having just cleansed herself of her impurity, and she returned to her house. The Tanakh often strings together verbs in this fashion to indicate speed and single-mindedness of purpose. What's interesting is how smack in the middle of this sequence, the subject changes from David to Bathsheba. He sent messengers, he fetched her, but then she came to him. But then it switches back to him laying with her, etc. And if you look at the Hebrew, how the verb come to or come into has a masculine subject and into is followed by a feminine object, this generally means only one thing. But what is the text trying to tell us with this switch in perspective? That Batsheva was not a passive object? That she gave consent? Considering her later advocacy for her son's rights of succession, could it be that she was willing participant in this open act of adultery to install her son on the throne? Yo! Hold up! Time out! Time out! Y'all take a chill! Here's the thing. I would like to think that individuals are agents of their own fate, that people do have choices, that people can say no. But perhaps that's just my white male privilege talking. Perhaps since I have choices and I can say no, I figure everyone else can too. And when I say everyone else, I mean women. And that, I have realized, is just not true. And though I do not agree with Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon's take on heterosexual sex as being basically rape, I do agree that women often find themselves in a literal and figurative position where they cannot really say no. I've also heard from far too many women in my life a variation of, well, I didn't say no to him, but I didn't say yes either. So the onus is on us men to gently seek consent and to seek it openly and plainly, and more importantly, to openly and plainly signal that it's totally okay when a woman, for whatever reason, refuses to give that consent. This is not what happened that night between David and Bathsheba. He had her brought to his palace. He had sex with her. Whether the text implies she might have been a willing participant, she couldn't have refused the king what he wanted, even if she was unwilling. I recall a similar arrangement men of power had with their female subjects, droit du seigneur, also known as jus prima noctis, where in medieval Europe and elsewhere, feudal lords were allegedly allowed to have sex with subordinate women on their wedding night. I say allegedly because there was no evidence of the right being exercised in medieval Europe. However, the persistence of the belief that such a right existed is rather telling. Now I'm sure some of you are thinking, why am I being such a party pooper? There's no evidence a lord ever deflowered a virgin peasant bride on her wedding night, and the text didn't say that David raped Bathsheba, and it could have if it's in fact that's what happened, because the Tanakh is not shy to cry rape when it's warranted. But here's the other thing. Rape isn't a static concept. For example, when questioned recently by reporters, Donald Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, stated, quote, 
you cannot rape your spouse. The questions to Trump's lawyer came as a result of a 1993 book entitled Lost Tycoon, The Many Lives of Donald J. Trump by Harry Hurt III. In this book, Hurt recounts how Trump's ex-wife, Ivana Trump, in a deposition during their divorce, described Trump raping her. Trump denied the allegations when the book came out, and Ivana, at the behest of Trump's lawyers, issued a statement to clarify what she meant. She didn't mean rape in a literal or criminal sense, but just that she felt violated. But here's the thing again. And perhaps since I didn't go to law school, I might have missed the subtleties. What Ivana Trump's described in her deposition sounds like rape to me. It was a violent incident involving what even the FBI would define as rape, and the FBI are not known as a bastion of feminism. But I guess since expensive lawyers were involved as well as large divorce settlements, statements that were made could be unmade. That said, I mention this incident to highlight how notions of rape have changed. New York State banned marital rape in 1984. So had this alleged incident happened in, say, 1979 instead of 1989, Trump's lawyer would not sound like such a retrograde ass. Except the incident happened in 1989, and Trump's lawyer commented on it in 2015. What an I think pretty much everyone will agree that you can rape your spouse, and it's becoming increasingly impossible to argue that non-consensual sex is somehow a gray area or just bad sex instead of rape. And in this light, it's increasingly difficult to frame what happened between David and Bacheva as consensual, which doesn't disgrace David any more than when he coolly schemes to murder Uriah. But it does make it a bit distasteful to gleefully sing David Melech Israel, much in the same way watching Bill Cosby play the ideal dad in The Cosby Show leaves a bitter, sickening taste in your mouth. But hopefully, that sickening taste will not stop you from calling out these men for what they are or were rapists. Maybe so. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out Tanakhcast. Or like Tanakhcast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find Tanakhcast. I thank you in advance for that, and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 73, when we continue the second book of Samuel with chapters 13 through 16.